I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How's it going? 
I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm kind of sad to see this episode come. Really? Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed, as we've said privately, debunking Hamlet and Hamlet practices Mm -hmm. and this being our final Hamlet episode for now. Yeah. It's kind of sad because I'm wanting to tear open that play and we've only looked at this play through four different lenses and there's a lot more here than meets the eye. And I thought I knew Hamlet pretty well, but... There's so much more. Yeah. Yeah. That we we definitely could have spent maybe like a whole year or more on Hamlet. There's people who definitely do. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for them. Yeah. But yeah, here we are. And uh, today we're talking about geopolitics and succession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember in our synopsis when we pointed out, you're going to have a great understanding of the geopolitics that happens in Hamlet. Here we are. Right. Here we are. Should we dive in? Let's do it. So to start off with, I wanted to talk about the Danish monarchy Mm. um, in Shakespeare's time. And one of the big questions that I see brought up a lot with Hamlet is that Hamlet should be king, right? Right. Claudius is referred to as an usurper. But for some reason, like, why is everyone fine with this if Hamlet should be king? Right. So I was like, let me me look into um, what the Danish monarchy was like, because we also have that language when Laertes comes with his rebellion, that, like, he should be elected, whereas this, like, elective body that he's trying to overthrow. Right, because during Shakespeare's time, the crown was Mm -hmm. a lineage who had the right... In England, exactly. Who had the right to the throne, and that seems to not be the case in uh, Hamlet's Denmark? That is correct. So in early modern Denmark... The monarchy was an elective monarchy. Mm. Yeah. So when the king died, there was a vote with basically like counselors. And technically, England's also like this, too, because Parliament had to uh, like ratify, has to like approve the king. They do, because that's why it took James so long. It was a big hullabaloo (laughs) getting James coronated. Yeah. There is progeniture, which is you have to be related to the former king, former queen in England. In Denmark, it was still in practice limited to uh, members of the royal household. So it would have been like Hamlet versus Claudius anyway. Mm-hmm. But people, probably lords, ladies, people who could vote for these types of things would vote and they voted for Claudius. So both Elizabeth and James and the fictional Claudius owe their thrones to the deliberate choice of a council, right? Right. And ultimately, like, would it have made a difference? Would the late, would the people watching Shakespeare's plays have known the difference? I argue that yes, because <laughs> what we do know from our research is that Shakespeare used a lot of current events, and there was a lot of current event knowledge going on, as well as yeah. commentary on a lot of writing, real things. And and we got to remember that James's queen was Danish. Yeah. So presumably there are people in the audience, especially the noble audiences, that would go, yes, that is, that's how our monarchy works. Additionally, elective monarchy is a detail present in two sources for Hamlet, Belfort's Histoire Tragique mm-hmm. and Saxo's Amletus. Okay. While both don't explicitly talk about it, they both... Belfort and Saxo demonstrate in other writings that they do understand the practice of elective monarchy, even though they didn't live in them. Both have Hamlet after 
He defeats the Claudius character in these sources for Hamlet, argue to other Danes why he should be king, Mm -hmm. and then they agree to make him king after Claudius' demise. Okay. And both sources also talk about the Claudius character as a usurper still. Specifically in Amletus, this is because by killing the king, Claudius, or in Amletus he's called Fang, Mm -hmm. thwarts the natural order of events and makes sure... The king dies while Amletus is a minor and therefore ineligible to inherit the crown. Uh-huh. So, in Amletus, Fang slash Claudius therefore forces the vote to go to him. And in theory, if the king had died a natural death instead of being murdered, the vote would have been between Fang, Claudius, and Amletus. So, even though like the vote is between Claudius and Hamlet, or it's just kind of Claudius, he can still be considered a usurper because... He's forcing the vote to happen before through murder. it should have. Through murder. Mm, mm-hmm. Not the actual time it should have. And I think in Shakespeare's Hamlet, we can see that as Hamlet being forced to interrupt his studies. Ah. You know, his studies would be his training to be king. He's not trained. Quite so yet. he still, you know, presumably had a few years to prepare to be king. Mm-hmm. And Claudius is now making the vote happen when Hamlet is unprepared. I see. So that's kind of like elective monarchy in a nutshell and how it being this like underlying fact about how Danish monarchy worked at the time does inform how Claudius becomes king instead of Hamlet, both legitimately. So everyone in Denmark is like, yeah, he should be king. He won the vote. Mm -hmm. But how he can also be a usurper at the same time. Because he forced the vote by killing the the current king or the, the previous king. Right. Okay. Now, um, I briefly talked about, like, what Shakespeare's audiences would understand about that fact of Danish life. But they also probably took a lot more from the play about their own current events Mm -hmm. in their political sphere. I'm going to bring back our old friend, the Earl of Essex. Yes. We haven't talked enough about him. We haven't talked about him in a long time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you realize this. I didn't. But Hamlet was written in the period between Essex's return from Ireland and the aftermath of his rebellion and execution. The other two plays that we get during this time are Henry V and Julius Caesar. Ah, I think I knew that in terms of like, I knew the dates roughly when that happened, but I did not put the two things together. Yep. Same. Yeah. And I know we've talked about it here. It's really hard to pin down an exact date for Hamlet. But what we can say is that Hamlet was being written and revised during the period of Essex's decline and fall. Mm. And then there are some real broad parallels between Essex and Hamlet. Yeah? Tell me more. Yeah? Okay. This is a quote from How Shakespeare Put Politics on Stage by Peter Lake. Quote, We have in Hamlet a figure deemed dangerous to the state, but too well connected, too well beloved by the queen and too popular with the people to be destroyed at home. He is therefore sent abroad on official business to meet his fate. But, seeing through the plot against him, he returns home unbidden and unannounced. That is exactly what many of Essex's supporters thought had happened to the Earl in Ireland, and if we pursue the parallel, then Hamlet back home from the pirate ship was in exactly the position enjoyed by Essex on his return from Ireland. 
under suspicion and surveillance, and subject to the malign, indeed the murderous, plots of his enemies. Mm. Unquote. Holy cow, I did not I did not put that together. Nope, me neither. <laughs> then we also have madness. So Hamlet is our melancholy prince. Right. Essex was also reported to suffer from a melancholy madness during his house arrest at York House after his return from Ireland, and his moods were closely monitored and commented on in writings that we have from those who watched him. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he had, like, multiple people who were monitoring him during his house arrest or other imprisonment during this time would write about his moods and how melancholy and distracted and how he had these kind of like stupendous despair and like he would go from stupendous despair to religious mania back and forth, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating because in our stuff to chew on, one of the things we briefly mentioned was surveillance being such a prominent part of this play. Hamlet mm-hmm. is constantly being watched and analyzed and mm-hmm. psychoanalyzed, even though that wouldn't be a term from that time. But that's what was happening to Hamlet. And if we're drawing these parallels, that's what's happening to Essex. Yes. And then you might be wondering like, okay, but this timing of the play, right? Mm -hmm. So if this was written before the rebellion, these parallels would have been super clear to a London audience. They would have been basically watching a commentary about current events on stage as the events were like still currently unfolding in the world around them. Mm. And there's precedent for this. So, Henry the Sixth, Part One, that happened for Shakespeare's audience. Mm-hmm. They were watching a play that was commenting on their current political events mm-hmm. while the current political events were still like resolving. Mm. Also, in the final version of this play that we have, the play Mel might even just like advertise that this is what's happening because it features the production of a play where rewritten passages are inserted into the text that have been written by a powerful courtier. And um, during the period of Essex's imprisonment in York House, two of his closest associates, the Earl of Southampton and the Earl of Rutland, were reported to often go to the theater, specifically the Globe, basically every day, and they used theater as a form of propaganda. So they would be writing speeches and asking players to do this. The players and play within play also make it quite clear that these players, these actors, are innocent of any sort of, like, incidental propaganda that they have definitely been just, like, paid to put on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty famously, these two, like, pay for a production of Richard II to yeah, perform. We know, we, we yeah. just discussed this very briefly in our intro series, and that got mm-hmm. the Globe potentially in a lot of trouble. Hot water. A lot yeah. of hot water, yeah. There's also the correlation between what Laertes is shown to successfully pull off in the play and what Essex and his followers tried and failed to do in London in February 1601, that overthrow and insurrection right. of storming Claudius's or mm-hmm. storming Denmark and the castle. Right. And just to say, we do have um, some passages that are usually used to date the play after the Essex Rebellion in concerns to the actors that are taken to be a reference to the Children of the Chapel, um, the boys' company that started playing at Blackfriars around 1600. And the War of the Theaters that basically were in between uh, the company at Blackfriars and the other stages that took place well after Essex's revolt and rebellion. Mm-hmm. And it is very precise, very topical. 
but it could also be construed as an indirect reference to the Essex Rebellion and characterize a play, the play as a text that is speaking to a set of circumstances that post-date that uh, incident. And also, if this play is being like constantly rewritten, mm-hmm. which we have trouble tacking it down, we have a few versions out there. Right. Um, it's entirely possible that just like all these things keep getting added in. So then this final detail of the war between the theaters where these players are now on the road because they are you know not as popular in, in, the, city. in the city uh-huh that's the detail that we're talking about that a lot of people used to postdate it well after essex's rebellion okay but you know it's possible that there's just this pile of references <laughs> from different times in the versions that we have now today you know i'm not surprised it's all for the 1590s mm-hmm. kids right <laughs> All that to say, if the play was written before February 1601, then it is like the staging of and a commentary of these events as they're playing out. Peter Lake says it, quote, joins the chorus of rumor and libel that attended the course of the Earl's confinement. Speculation so pervasive that the regime staged two public demonstrations of his guilt to still it, unquote. Uh Uh-huh. So it could be a daring attempt to cash in on like popular interest in rumor. If it's written after the Essex Rebellion, it can also be a retrospective version and commentary upon those events, Mm. Um, especially considering how it is closely tied to Julius Caesar, which Lake also argues is influenced by the events surrounding Essex. And this is all fascinating because the difficult thing that I have with Hamlet's perspective or opinion on the rightful ruler is that, like, I read it and get conflicting messages from the play. Is Claudius actually beloved by the subjects of Denmark? Is Hamlet more beloved? So like this, you know, are we experiencing this in real time with Essex who was beloved, who was a favorite and then fell out? Or are we doing this retrospectively? Kind of again about a guy who like, you know, February 1601 to the end of 1601, that's not actually that long of a time. Mm -hmm. Still pretty recent events. Right. And I imagine that people, I haven't explored people's opinions or like Shakespeare's contemporaries' uh, views on Essex's fall, but I'm assuming that it was, it varied depending on what people believed Mm -hmm. or didn't believe. Right. So. Early modern England was not a monolith, as we say. Yeah. So um, just real quick, Julius Caesar could have been also possibly influenced by the events surrounding Essex. We have two very parallel plays in these two. They share a lot of common themes. Mm -hmm. They both feature, for example, ghosts of people who have been murdered for political gain. Mm -hmm. And the central characters really struggle between taking action and waiting for some sort of divine intervention or clear morality um, with their action. Both of these characters, Brutus and Hamlet, are hailed at the end of their plays as epitomes of nobility and valor. Mm -hmm. Big differences is that Brutus is pagan, Roman, and lives in a democratic republic. Mm -hmm. And Hamlet is, you know, Christian and believes in an afterlife. Mm -hmm. Brutus does not believe in an afterlife. (laughs) So... Peter Lake argues that Julius Caesar allows the English Christian and monarchical present to be analyzed through a reflection of the Roman, pagan, and republican past. And while Caesar allows Shakespeare's audience to examine these modern events without the weight of morality and heaven or hell on these events, Mm -hmm. Hamlet 
creates more of that moral argument. Uh-huh. However, just like with Claudius and the murder of Gonzago, Hamlet also argues that any relevant connections are not being made by the actors on stage or the right. action on stage. We're catching the consciousness of the king. It is in the consciousness the and the audience that's watching it. Mm-hmm. So if, yeah. you know, anybody's watching and drawing parallels between this play and current events, it's in your head, just like Claudius saw himself in the murder of Gonzaga. Right. So that's how Hamlet connected to the geopolitics and may have displayed the geopol- the geopolitics of Shakespeare's day on stage. I love that too, because we know, we've discussed many times that playwrights in the you know early modern era could not put events on stage quite so crystal clear because of being accused of treason or any other or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then I like that just like the mess like the messaging that Shakespeare and his theater wanted to let everyone know like what you're seeing on stage is a reflection of you making connections. He puts that inside the play so that he's in a way having his characters model what the audience right. like his argument is there. It's like no 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 look in this play the actors can't be faulted for this. Completely it's, innocent. They're completely innocent. Just doing what they're paid to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a political leader, someone very wealthy, pays them to do something. They don't maybe understand fully what they're doing. Right. And it gives the actors some equivocation there. Exactly. Some plausible deniability. And also says, and if that doesn't happen and you're seeing things, you're reading things into this, well, that's on you. Right. Especially <laughs> because at at the time yeah. that Hamlet was being written, and uh, just like Hamlet's search for the truth about Claudius and the death of his father, England was going through trying to figure out the truth of what was going on with Essex. Right. Yeah. Mm, that's so neat. Uh, speaking of geopolitics, <laughs> you were really interested in um, how... We learned that Hamlet outside of English-influenced theater, or very Western theater, Mm -hmm. England and North America, tends to be a little bit more about the politics than the domestic drama. Yes. Um, And I know you were really, really looking forward to learning what that looks like. Yeah. And I'm so excited to learn about it. Well, I'm glad. I spent my time learning about Hamlet in Russia and Soviet Russia. Because like we said in our Stuff to Chew on, there is that very famous 1964 Hamlet film. And first of all, it has a bajillion accolades. Well, not a bajillion, but it has a lot of accolades. And a lot of scholars, historians, film critics say it's the best done adaptation, film adaptation of Hamlet. And I'm like thinking to myself, like, what is going on there? Because we see Freud as a big part of the influence on how you produce yeah you know we've got the uh mel gibson hamlet where it's like really leaning into that oedipus complex Mm -hmm. but then on the other side of the spectrum you have very um heavy-handed geopolitics in this play and what is it like to lean into it before i share my research i just do want to take a moment since we're going back to russia and soviet russia to revoke some of my research from our episode on Macbeth, Tyranny and Treason, in which we chatted about modern tyrants and early modern treason. 
I actually was made aware of biases in one of my sources. And so after doing some more research, I found that there were some comparisons I made in that episode were that were inaccurate. Uh, so while I was presenting mm. my research on Stalin, I made a lot of generalizations and misrepresented the USSR as a whole because of my source. But since that episode, I've learned more about the USSR and want to share that there still is some overlap. Like we can still discuss tyrants and qualities of a tyrant. However, the USSR wasn't a totalitarian state, despite popular Western conceptions of Soviet life and leadership. The population in the USSR was actually quite happy with the improvements of their lives after the revolution in 1917. Some of those improvements are like gains in literacy, industrial wages, healthcare, women's rights. The arts were greatly funded during that time period. So that's why I'm going to talk about Hamlet in the USSR. But I just really wanted to um, share that much of what we understand to have been tyrannical or oppressive about the USSR was dispelled by the opening of the Soviet archives in the 90s. So in order to be accurate, I want to like throw out to all of our listeners that I have since made some edits to that episode. And um, it's still the same conversation about tyrants and treason, but without my inaccuracies. All right. <laughs> yeah. We are a, a continuously learning duo here. So yeah. I, you know, if we ever make any sort of mistakes or misspeak, I think it's our responsibility to come out and say so, even though mm -hmm. some podcasters and other people will like uh, double down. I don't want to be that kind of person. No, we're, we're here to learn. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so now let's learn about Hamlet in Russia. So it is generally accepted that Alexander Sumarokov, sometimes called the founder of Russian classical tragedy, was responsible for introducing both Shakespeare and a version of Hamlet into Russia in 1748. And Sumarokov himself described his Hamlet as having very, very little in common with Shakespeare's tragedy. I mean, it's Hamlet, but it's, it's really not. Mm -hmm. He actually regarded Shakespeare as an, quote, unenlightened genius subject to and in need of numerous corrections, unquote. So he adapted his Hamlet from the French neoclassicist model of the play. Mm. So Hamlet has made its way into Russia, but it's not really Hamlet. Yeah. And since the common Russian view of Sumorokov's tragedies stresses their political message and sees the plays as allegories on good and bad monarchs, it could be argued that his Hamlet set the trend for the association of this tragedy with political messages. So this play arrives and is first performed in 1757. And then after 1762, despite it being very successful and having many successful productions, it had disappeared from the Russian stages after 1762. And that's namely because there are parallels between the Hamlet plot and Catherine II's come to power. Hold on. Real quick. Yeah. Catherine II is Catherine the Great, right? Yeah, Catherine the Great. People may have heard of her as Catherine the Great. You can see in, like, a fictionalized culture. version of her rise to power in The Great, currently on Hulu. I've heard it's an incredible show. I was like, I feel like maybe that's Kath that's like the right time. It's her. And that would make sense for someone to connect Catherine the Great, to... Catherine II of Russia, to mm -hmm. Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Because she overthrew her husband, Peter the Third, And yeah. <laughs> there's the political messages that you can see. But mm -hmm. even though Hamlet had disappeared from the Russian stage, actually, Catherine and other Russian aristocrats felt a kinship with this court figure to his higher mission and a private world. 
The next important staging of Hamlet took place in 1810 at the Imperial Theater of St. Petersburg. And to some, this Hamlet was understood as an effort to rehabilitate Alexander I, who was the czar from 1801 to 1825. And this Hamlet was in line with patriotic feelings of the time. So there's a shift. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then Romanticism, as well as the development of native Russian theater, marked a turning point for Shakespeare in Russia. Goethe's reading of Hamlet in his Wilhelm Meister's apprenticeship changed the Russian attitude towards Hamlet from primarily a political drama to a philosophical historical tragedy. So by the 1800s, we are now in philosophical Hamlet. Mm, mm -hmm. And Russian bardolatry was taken to new levels. So here at the podcast, we try to avoid bardolatry. In 1800s Russia, they were into it. Fascinating. And I wonder if it's at all connected because we also see the Victorian like bardolatry, like Shakespeare comes back into fashion fashion, and it becomes like, ooh, he's this great thinker and just so ahead of his time. And we're using this is around the same period. Around the same time as we're seeing the guys in the top hats trying to make uh, psychiatry a thing. Yeah. Okay. And so Russian bardolatry was taken to these new levels. And Shakespeare's dramatic structure and characterizations was incorporated into Russian dramatic works. So now not only is um, Shakespeare the playwright popular, but so is that dramatic style. And his works also become popular in poetry and literature. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, we've only seen Sumerokov's Hamlet that's not really Hamlet. The first translation from the original Shakespeare text was not attempted in Russia until 1828 and 1833 by Mikhail Vronchenko. So he has two translations from the original mm-hmm. Shakespeare text. And then Nikolai Polovoy attempted a translation in 1837, and this one was pivotal for Hamlet in Russia. Ooh. Both of these playwrights did modify Shakespeare's text in different ways. Bronchenko, for example, took out all hints of Ophelia's sexuality. Um, so this is like the image of purity for Ophelia. Mm-hmm. And Polovoy, on the other hand, didn't shy away from freely editing Shakespeare's text and at the same time Russifying it by eliminating the foreign elements. So Polovoy's translation has been seen as successful in the transplantation of Shakespeare to the Russian soil and its literary theatrical system. So Polovoy was like, this is Hamlet, but this is Russian Hamlet. Mm-hmm. In this era, the 1800s, Russia and Europe were both engaged in what my source, Michelle Assay, calls Hamletism, a tendency to interpret Hamlet, the character, as a symbol. So proper name turns into common noun, which embodies certain philosophical, social, psychological, or political characteristics and represents a certain type or behavior. So according to the time and place, new symbolic meanings are assigned to Hamlet, the character, which in turn influences the interpretation of Hamlet, the play, and it keeps the text alive for the appropriating nation or era. So we are not going back and looking at what was happening in England during Shakespeare's time. We're like, here's this play. How can we use it? Mm -hmm. With the death of two of the biggest Hamlets of that era, Pavel Mokolov and Vasily Karatygin in the mid-1800s, the acting choices changed from passionate and emotional to a more natural and refrained acting style. 
And this is due to the transition from romanticism to Russian realism. So that was happening Mm -hmm. in like the translations and also the way the actors were performing Hamlet. This included a change for Hamlet, who is now a melancholic prince associated with the superfluous man, which is a Russian character who is talented and capable, but does not fit in with social norms. The last half of the 19th century saw at least 10 more translations of Hamlet, although none were as popular as Polovoy's translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so by this point, we have like 13 translations. Right. Super interesting to me is that as it heads into the late 1800s, this popular realization of Hamlet and this natural style of acting is paralleling the lives and careers of Konstantin Stanislavski mm-hmm. and Anton Chekhov. Correct. Um, Anton Chekhov is considered one of the fathers of modern theater, and Stanislavski is considered one of the like father uh, father of modern acting. That sort of natural yeah. acting style. So it's very interesting that like. When we have looked at the story of Hamlet elsewhere, outside of Russia, we're getting, you know, still presumably very performative pieces. Right. If we look to England and America, we're getting Sarah Bernhardt. We're getting the booths. We're getting the booths. But then like over in Russia, it's intertwined with this development of what will become the overhaul of how people act. Right. What we what we today use as our foundational acting training. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, The 1860s was more concerned with Russian plays than Hamlet. However, there were still two big Hamlets, one in 1891, whose instrumental interludes by Tchaikovsky overshadowed the other production, which was a contemporary Russian production. And then by the end of the 19th century, Hamlets were strong and active. In 1891, Hamlet was called naturalistic, a rough, sarcastically ironic man. I like that. We talked in um, one mm-hmm. of our episodes previous about perhaps he's more active running around the stage. Perhaps he yeah. has a sense of humor. And that seems to be what, you know, um, if we look back to original productions or as close as we can get, that seems to be what, you know, the second Hamlet ever is described as being. And then, you know, in 1800s, early 1900s, England and America, it's this psychologically tormented, sad, melancholy Hamlet. Right. And it's interesting that, yeah. That Russia's already kind of doing it. Yeah, Russia's doing it. Yes. The next big one is in 1911-12 came the famous collaboration between Gordon Craig and Konstantin Stanislavski at the Moscow Art Theater. Here's our father of modern acting. And Moscow Art Theater was a Big deal. This Hamlet is considered one of the most important Hamlets for it was the first, quote, to activate the motif of self-sacrifice, unquote, for a Russian Hamlet. The theme of this production was a Christ-like Hamlet. And then by the late 19-teens, there's a little thing called the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm-hmm. And um, the Just revolution... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the revolution removed the czar and installed a new government. So now we're going to refer to Russia as the Soviet Union or the USSR. And the appropriation of Shakespeare posed a dilemma for Soviet artists. The Shakespearean productions immediately following the revolution mirrored, quote, the characteristic diversity of direction and explorations of the early Soviet theater, unquote. So Soviet theater was trying to figure out what is Soviet theater. Mm -hmm. 
And I have a question for you. Can you can you guess which play would have been staged more often than others during these early years of the Soviet Union? Which Shakespeare play? Yeah, which Shakespeare play? Not Julius Caesar. Mm-mm. I was like, that would be wild. Like that would be <laughs> um, a popular overthrow of a leader. Um, comedy or tragedy? It's a tragedy. <laughs> it it's a tragedy. Okay. Have we covered it here on the podcast? We have already? covered it on the podcast. Is it Macbeth? It is Macbeth. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Assay argues that this is because Macbeth lent itself to the interpretation in the spirit of anti-monarchial revolution. Mm. The early years of the Soviet Union also had a lot of like avant-garde theater. So there was a cubist interpretation that included Brechtian alienation, which I find very fascinating. And other popular Shakespeare plays... Um, of the early Soviet years were Othello. Othello was one of the most popular tragedies in the 1930s. And then um, its rival was Romeo and Juliet. So those are the big ones. Romeo and Juliet was going to be one of my guesses if it wasn't. Yeah. One that we've covered on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just like, hmm, there's like families versus families. Like that seems potentially interesting for Mm -hmm. a post-revolution Soviet Union. Right. And I mean, it was popular. So you were thinking, you were thinking Mm -hmm. correctly. In the 20s, in 1924, a Hamlet was performed at the Second Moscow Art Theater starring Mikhail Chekhov, and this Hamlet was highly stylized, and there are a a range of opinions about this adaptation, from its distorted interpretation to its dissident nature. Alexei Semenuko argues that this was, quote, the beginning of the humanist interpretation, unquote, of Hamlet in Soviet Russia. One year later, in 1925, a largely overlooked production by, quote, Marzanishvili performed in Tbilisi. And Marzanishvili steered away from the 1911 Christ Hamlet, remember the one with Stanislavski, and centered on the romantic play of contrasts between dark and light, lofty spirituality and base sensuality, heroism and villainy. According to theater critic Konstantin Ranitsky, this Hamlet was more consistent and accessible than the 1924 distorted Hamlet. In 1926, Russian Hamlet started being adapted by other parts of the Soviet Union. The most radical one took place in Azerbaijan State Theater in Baku. This Hamlet was set in Oriental costumes and the set design was Turkish and Persian. And this production enjoyed a long life and toured to Moscow and Leningrad in 1930. So people are taking Hamlet and they are uh, doing what they will with him. All over all over the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. In the 1920s, Soviet theater was largely avant garde, like I said. Mm -hmm. So think of this distorted Hamlet from 1924 and the Cubist Brechtian Macbeth. Other popular types of theater included mass spectacles like medieval cycle plays or mass festivals and something called people's theater, which is like Commedia dell'arte. So we're going to move on and we're going to talk about two important Hamlets. The first Hamlet that I want to talk about is Nikolai Akimov's 1932 Hamlet, which was an experimental production. Akimov started in the visual arts and he fell into theater. And so he like went from children's theater and cabaret theater. And by the time he directed Hamlet, he had an experimental style that was a mixture of various forms of theater and visual art. In Akimo's conception, Hamlet was not a philosopher. So remember, by the 1800s, it went from political Hamlet to philosophical Hamlet, and Akimov was not interested in philosophical Hamlet. The character of Hamlet was played by Anatoly Goranov, who's an actor mostly known as a comedian. He was a chubby, short, witty, 
young man fighting for his right to be the king of Denmark. Uh, the plot was emptied of its usual enigmas and instead focused on one main intrigue, the struggle for the Danish throne. Even though that sounds really fascinating, like we're going back to politics. He made a lot of artistic decisions that were artistic <laughs> decisions. <laughs> he made choices. Uh-huh. Choices were made. Uh-huh. Choices were made. Uh, Horatio joined Hamlet in the to be or not to be soliloquy, and it turned into a dialogue. And in the course of this to be or not to be speech, Hamlet was trying on a paper mache crown left over from the actor's rehearsal. Uh, the iconic ghost scene was completely reinterpreted. Um, inspired by Erasmus's colloquies, Akimov evoked a masquerade where Hamlet spoke both his lines as Hamlet and the ghosts, pretending to be the ghost. Um, Horatio helped Hamlet during this scene by making spooky noises with the help of a clay pot. Yeah, that's... that's yeah. Your face represents <laughs> what people said about oh. this. Um, <laughs> I'm still a little bit stuck on... Sorry, I'm still a little bit stuck on, like, mm-hmm. to be or not to be as a dialogue. Like, to be yeah. or not to be. That is the question. Yeah. Like, I'm like <laughs> to how, people, how like, on you... a stoop, just like... Huh, how would someone uh-huh. break that up to make it a dialogue? So, so yeah, my brain's been a little bit... Mm-hmm. But um, in addition to the ghost and to be or not to be soliloquy, Ophelia was transformed into a femme fatale. According to Akimov, there was no real love between her and Hamlet, and her function was to spy on Hamlet and to report back to her father Polonius. Her death was due to getting drunk and drowning. Uh, the play within a play was transformed into a rehearsal with the actors, Hamlet and Horatio, and the performance itself of the play within a play was set off stage and we watched the audience so claudius gertrude hamlet all of them watching the play and theater historian konstan ranitsky said quote in akimov's production as soon as hamlet became a cunning schemer leading the power struggle the tragedy promptly turned into a comedy and this comedy stripped of romanticism but burdened by the shakespearean tragic text did not turn out at all funny akimov's production more than anything else resembled a parody of hamlet Unquote. Ooh. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't cute. Swing and a mess. Mm-hmm. And there are historians who attribute the unpopularity of this production to like censorship and formalism of the Soviet Union, but critics of the time were like just really not into into this what a say calls a Shakespearement. There are a handful of reviews saying this is trash. <laughs> <laughs> And in 1936, Akimov published an essay outlining his reading of Shakespeare's tragedy and his reasons for considering his interpretation more genuine and closer to the Bard's intentions and to Elizabethan traditions than other Hamlets. There are some delusional people who work in the theater. And actually, in 1943, the Shakespeare cabinet of the Soviet Union returned to a discussion of this production, and the discussion inevitably turned into questioning Akimov and his production. So, like, why did you do this, man? What was the reason? So that's a Shakespearement. It was a very popular production, not a successful one, but a popular one to talk about. Moving on down the timeline, another really pivotal Hamlet was Sergei Radlov's 1938 Hamlet. Uh, Sergei Radlov was the son of a professor who moved in high circles of the intelligentsia and was himself a scholar. 
but he worked for the Revolutionary Experimental Theater and as an official cultural bureaucrat in the 1920s. In the 1920s, Radlov's popular theater put on like actor circus types of performances. That was his background. And even in the years of the theater of popular comedy, Radlov avoided the temptation to put Shakespeare, who he says has done us no harm, upside down like Akimov did. Before we get to Radlov's uh, Hamlet, he did do quite a few other Shakespeare plays. Radlov was of the opinion that there was one correct way to do Shakespeare. So unlike Akimov, who was all over the place, he was like, no, you do it this way. Radlov's Hamlet premiered with great success in May of 1938 and was representative of what was now a reigning socialist realist theater. So by the end of the 30s, we move into socialist realism as a style of theater. Mm -hmm. In the 30s, there were also a lot of provincial Hamlets touring. I'm not going to go into all of them, but there are at least like three very popular ones. Not only was Hamlet rather popular to put on the stage, um, Shakespeare scholarship was also quite popular. In the 1930s, there was esteem accorded to theory and scholarship of Shakespeare. Ever since the equation of Shakespeare with Soviet writers at the 1934 First All-Union Congress of Soviet Writers, the status of Shakespeare as one of the models for socialist literature was continually reaffirmed. So Soviet Russia loved Shakespeare. They were super into him. The Soviets were among forerunners in celebrating the 375th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth in 1939. The central topic of the Shakespeare birthday, the 375th anniversary, was uh, according to Yuri Spassky's article, was, quote, Why do Hamlet and Romeo, Lear and Prospero, Cordelia and Desdemona, Ophelia and Rosalind, speak so eloquently to the consciousness of people of the great Soviet era? Why are the ideas and passions of Shakespeare so close to the generation who achieved communism? Unquote. So they were really into him. At the 1940 conference of the Shakespeare cabinet, one of the most heated discussions was of Boris Pasternak's first version of his translation of Hamlet that came out that year. Boris Pasternak, guy who wrote Dr. Zhivago. Really? Yes, same guy. Hamlet did die down in the war years, and that's partially because, like the Allies during wartime, artists were encouraged to turn to exploration of nationalism, not world classics. And so the emphasis in the 40s was not internationalism, but Slavic solidarity and Russian nationalism as the Soviets were fighting with the Allies against fascism. In the post-war years, Soviet writers, playwrights, theater makers were encouraged to establish a higher portion of Soviet plays in their theater seasons. So the emphasis um, after the war years was let's write plays about Soviet people, Soviet stories. Although at the same time, there is good evidence to suggest that in post-war years, the Bard was generally tolerated and generously subsidized by communist authorities as they're trying to get these Soviet plays mm -hmm. up and running. Shakespeare bore the seal of approval of Marx, Engels, and Lenin, so he was a very attractive subject for schools and research institutes. And he was viewed as a link between the East and the West as well. And then... In the 50s, there were three really important Hamlets. Um, one of them was Nikolai Oplakov's. Another was Grigory Kozintsev's. And the other one was Sergei Radlov, 
returned with another Hamlet. Um, scholars say that these Hamlets found a balance between vigilance and heightened class struggle alongside portraying the beauty of our life. So like, as the Soviet Union is progressing and shifting, so is Hamlet. Hamlet is adapting to a Soviet culture. And then the last really monumental Hamlet that I'm going to talk about is the 1964 Hamlet. In 1964, the Soviet Union celebrated Shakespeare's 400th anniversary on an unprecedented, grandiose scale, marked by an outpouring of conferences, books, articles, theater productions, and other forms of adaptation. Shakespeare's anniversary became, according to one writer, quote, our own special occasion, a red-letter day in the calendar of a country in which Shakespeare has truly found a second home, a vast country, generous in love and gratitude, always ready to bring his great works to life again and again, pouring into them her own feelings and emotions, unquote. And in 1964, that was also when Grigory Kozintsev's film adaptation was released. Kozintsev's theater production was back in 54. And then this 1964 film adaptation went on to be nominated for several international prizes and won the special jury prize at the Venice Film Festival in 1964. It also provided a first encounter with Soviet Shakespeare appropriations for most non-Russian speakers. Mm. Beyond that 1964 Hamlet, Hamlet and Hamlet's themes were used as a subject matter for opera, ballet, film ballet, and songs. And um, the trend continued even after the collapse of the Soviet Union and beyond. And that's Hamlet in Soviet Russia. Fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting to me how there are moments where it parallels the West and how the West is reacting to Hamlet, especially in the 1800s, or how the West is reacting to Shakespeare in the 1800s. But mm-hmm. how there's also just this idea of like Russia being. Shakespeare's second home and how much fondness and almost like ownership over and like love for the works also exists there is also something that I was not aware of. Neither was I. I mean, we've talked so much about like performing Shakespeare and what is the Shakespeare that you're trying to perform, Mm -hmm. like depending on what lens you're looking at it through. And I think it's fascinating that like appropriating Shakespeare's work for the people who lived there mm-hmm. and the artists that were creating art right you know and doing Shakespeare and not being stuck in mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me that like freed of having the same cultural context you know ha- coming mm-hmm. at it from a different cultural context they're able to right. you know achieve naturalism in Shakespeare um there's not the what yeah. we still sometimes find you know in Shakespeare training of this idea of like presentational performing Shakespeare they yeah. You know, Russians have been doing it from the 1800s that, you know, it can be pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And I did watch the Kozintsev film adaptation. It's on YouTube for free. And I loved it. You watched it. it without me? We have, a, we have a whole episode to do, Corey, where we watch movie versions of these. I know, but I had to watch it if I was going to talk a little bit about okay, it. So should I watch so, it for... I our highly next recommend episode you on Hamlet, it which is where we'll be for our wrap up. up. Okay, so we'll talk more in depth yeah. about yeah. it specifically yeah. next time. Yeah, but there are all different countries, cultures, eras, nations that use Shakespeare, and um, I guess I never really, prior to studying this, thought about 
the translations, the appropriations, how they used it for their culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, you know, a cool way to keep Shakespeare alive. And obviously some things can go wrong. So I'm not saying that every single adaptation is going to be good. But, you know, it's, you know, he's he's a living document. Yes. That's what we talk about here all the time. Like, why do we still engage with it? Because it works as this living document that is still worth engaging with deeply. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff here. Yep. So all that said, thank you for listening to this episode. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make but thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patrons, Lara McNichol, Gwen, and Robert Benz. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod, or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Othello, Act 3, Scene 3, Spoken by Iago Poor and content is rich, and rich enough, but rich as fineless is as poor as winter to him that ever fears he shall be poor.